Hello, 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 and welcome to The Long Road Podcast. The journey goes ever on with The Long Road. This episode, Vagabond Dreams. So this week we ruminate on the idea of songs being stories that are animated by music. Um, Steve Bonham tells us of his journey from the peak of the Atlas Mountains to the edge of the Sahara Desert, pursued by secret police, arrested for vagrancy and fending off attacks from local vipers, all included. The inspiration for a new song came in the form of a Californian girl and her partner that he met. So the Long Road podcast is exploring the world of the vagabond, the troubadour, the adventurer. The world isn't beige, it isn't processed, it's authentic, it's rich and it's real. And if those are the sorts of sentiments that make your brain light up, then hop on board. We are embracing all of those things, we are celebrating all of that. And we'd love it if you join us on the journey. Greetings, I'm Chris the Bish Leiden. Welcome to another episode of the Long Road Podcast. So this is episode 14 and we are halfway through our planned second season. We've done six episodes in 2020 so far and the plan is to do six more uh, before we have a little break and then we'll be back with further series later on in the year. Um, big up to all of our friends in the music and event industries right now. It's difficult times with the spread of coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever what I was supposed to call it now, um, gigs and shows and events being cancelled or postponed all over the place. Here in the UK, further afield in Europe, the US, everywhere really. Um, tricky times for everybody involved, so here's sending out our very best wishes to everybody. Um, we've got to keep following the official advice, do our bits as best we can, try not to add to the hysteria of some of the, the mass media uh, and get everyone through to the, to the other side of this. I see Glastonbury announced a good chunk of their lineup for the festival in June, but prefaced by Emily Evis with a well, we're announcing this with the very best of intentions. Um, it's just about anyone can do right now, the, the best of intentions. Anyway, uh, a couple of long road things to begin. We have the latest newsletter from Artisan Creative coming out next week. So if you'd like to be included on all the latest going on there, please head to artisan-creative.com and sign up for the newsletter. It only comes out every quarter, so you won't be bombarded with emails at all. We have officially announced our double premiere coming up in April in London and Derby. Uh, we have our new part gig, part theatre show called How to Be a Vagabond, where Steve and yours truly will be bringing some of our songs to life in a storytelling setting based on some of the trips, locations and events that inspired the songs. And then we'll also be launching our new EP, Moonshine Elegy, as well. Uh, so the London date is Tuesday the 14th of April at the Harrison Pub in King's Cross. The Derby date is Friday the 17th of April at the Maypole in Derby. The details are on Facebook. Look up Steve Bonham's page. Uh, there are events set up on there, and the tickets are available from artisan-creative.com. So, on to the topic of today's podcast. Um, Steve Bonham, our vagabond philosopher, talks a bit about how the world is a tapestry of stories and how songs are stories put to music. So, over to Steve, and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> The world is made of stories. They run like hidden streams across continents, or like fantastical tree roots under oceans. They shape and bind what we see, what we feel. The whole dreaming, devilish dance of life picks up their rhythm. Songs are just stories made musical. A while ago, standing on the top of Mount Tukal, the highest mountain in North Africa, I looked eastwards towards the Sahara Desert, over 300 miles away, 
and was struck with the absurd but totally compelling idea to walk from these high peaks towards that remote mystical wilderness. Setting off with a Berber friend, Moha, two mule boys and two mules, exchanging them after 200 miles for three camels, I wandered through one of the least visited parts of North Africa. I was on the trail of a lost tribe of dwarves, the echoes of the glowy warlords and puppets of the French who ruthlessly controlled the region and were still displaying the heads of their enemies on the gates of the fortresses in 1947. Of old camel routes which snaked in and out of the Atlas and Anti-Atlas mountains and to understand more about the Berbers, whose very name for themselves, the Amaziks, means free men. On the way, I was possibly arrested for vagrancy, followed by the secret police on Velocet motorcycles, attacked by an Egyptian viper, and protected by a spirit dog called Black. But all this paled into insignificance when, after 450 kilometres, dirty, dehydrated, and thoroughly disoriented, I made my way out of the sand dunes to a place called Mohammed, a rough and ready village on the Algerian border, a kind of no-man's land of history with too many bored soldiers for my liking. Mohammed is next to the last major oasis on the way south into the Great Sahara, where trade caravans gathered before setting off to Timbuktu and beyond some as many as 5,000 camels together would have made this trip. But there are some hotels here for intrepid tourists who think the mystery of the desert can be discovered by travelling at high speed through it or on a 4x4 or a dune buggy. And there being hotels meant there was a distinct possibility of a shower and even more remarkably a bed, both of which had been missing from my life for too long. We walked into the first one we saw. It was old and chipped tiles covered adobe walls, deeply dark inside and cool. The reception was empty, but in the corner, a young couple sat staring at PC screens. And that is how I met the girl from California. Now, I don't know why, but there is a simple rule of travel that wherever you go, no matter how far off the beaten path you have wandered, eventually you will meet a girl from California. When I asked her what she was doing there, I was told she was painting hotel signs. And when I asked her what her, I assume, boyfriend was doing, she said, oh, he mends the shades. No backup information was offered. And she questioned with now customary incredulity, why we had walked from the top of the Atlas Mountains to here. Eventually, we did meet the hotel owner, who turned out to be a Dutch car dealer from Amsterdam. For various reasons, we didn't stay there, but my head started to create a backstory to why and how this particular California girl was where she was. Amazingly, a few days later, on the streets of Zagora, as we made our way back, we bumped into the two of them. We talked more this time, and I had the amazing realisation that this backstory I had created was more and more true. She said to me, you know, 
I feel we are connected somehow. We should stay in touch. She took my email address and said she would write. Of course, being Californian, she never did. So, well, the, the Californian girl never dropped Steve that line, but Steve did have a story. Uh, you know, her, her backstory, it, it turns out a fusion of reality and invention um, in mind when he put down the, the story in verse. A little later, we'll talk a bit more about what happened to those verses, but for now, um, Steve is here presenting uh, as a poem the words he wrote inspired by that part of his trip and the people he met uh, in those places. Uh, now, Steve will be the first to admit it's not the most imaginative title, but it is at least descriptive. So here is Moroccan Song. It's a dirty, thirsty, cracked-up street with a Coke sign over the bar where a watermelon man sells sunshine gold in the remains of the old bazaar. And the gap-toothed fellow and the cat with one eye keep a watch on things as they pass under a tamarind tree by the old village well drinking sweet tea from a glass. There's a Californian girl who's been a long time on the run with an email from her mother and a message from her brother saying, we're so sorry that you've gone. It's a dirty, thirsty, cracked-up street the coke sign over the bar where a watermelon man sells sunshine gold in the remains of the old bazaar. They built their world from wood and straw and the mud from the riverbed, but the California girl is more concerned about the things going on in her head. And the genie in the bottle who granted her three wishes then sailed her over the sea to the tamarind tree by the old village well and some sunburnt geography where the California girl is painting hotel signs. She's something to confess, won't say her life's a mess, but nothing seems to fit or rhyme. They've built their world from wood and straw and the mud from the riverbed, but the California girl is more concerned about the things going on in her head. And the lights go out around the swimming pool, there's a twister over the dunes, and the California girl is out there walking, in the shadows of a dead-eyed moon. While the man who bought the hotel and the boy who makes the shades have wrapped themselves in blue, smoking old Moroccan, believing they're forgotten from a bad time point of view. They share a memory, like rain in mid-July, of the world's perpetual motion and the fish out in the ocean and the snow falling from the sky. The lights go out round the swimming pool there's a twister over the dunes. The California girl is out there walking in the shadows of a dead-eyed moon. It's kind of funny to think that with the, the power of the internet these days, maybe we'll, we'll reach that Californian girl and she'll hear about this song that was written about her. Um, maybe stranger things have happened. Steve's ruminations here made me think more on the sort of the notion of, of songs being stories animated or brought to life by, by music. And of course it's not the case that stories on their own can't be full of life and vibrancy themselves. One of the things I always loved about reading stories in my head is that the, the world that is conjured in your imagination. Um, in some ways it's, it's no one's world. In other ways it's the author's world that you're sort of stepping into and in some ways it's purely... Purely my world, my creation, my imagination, uh, and by its nature can be nobody else's. Um, you know, thinking about what exactly does that character look like? How exactly do they hold themselves? How do they walk? 
Um, how exactly do they do they talk? Do they have what regional idi- idiosyncrasies exist in their voice? The the description of a particular location conjures up one thing to me and a a different thing to someone else. I remember years ago having a chat with a a dear dear pal of mine who um, who was head over heels in love with a certain well-known Wizarding Universe book series. Uh, you might know what I'm talking about. Um, and this was this was after many of the the books were published, but only after, I don't know, one or two of the films had come out. Um, and she was so excited to see the books come to life on screen, although I'm sure they had been pretty vibrant enough in her mind's eye. But after she saw that first film on screen, she was actually, I think, deep down, uh, a little disappointed, I'm afraid. The words that in her mind had created an image of vision, a world, for some reason that first film just didn't quite didn't quite capture it. Um, it was close. It was good. There were many things that were that they got spot on, but some of the, um, I guess, ironically, the, the magic wasn't quite there. Um, so, as a as a salve to this disappointment, she threw herself back into the books, into the words, rereading them from the start, wallowing in her own imagination again, allowing whatever it is in our brains that creates to create once more. I don't know about you, but when I've seen film adaptations of books I've loved. Even having seen the film, when I return to read the books, uh, I, you know, I tend to still see the original version in my head, the my imagined version, more often than not. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some incredible filmmakers out there um, who manage somehow to get their imagination up there on the screen um, in incredible ways, mind-blowing ways. But sometimes, perhaps, perhaps often, the the human imagination is still stronger. Perhaps it's because a film a visual thing has to create everything. There can be no gaps or blind spots. Everything has to be there. Whereas our imagination, like our dreams, we completely accept that there are visual gaps or time gaps or sound gaps or logical gaps or reality gaps. Our brain just sort of goes with it, not even attempting to fill in the gaps, really, just allowing things to exist as they are. And I think with songs, I think there are similarities with dreams. We accept the gaps. Not every detail of the the scene or the location is painted in pixel-perfect detail, but the suggestions, notions, washes of ideas in the music and the words um, which leave us our imagination, our personal movie theatre in our heads to create however much more we want, if we want. Um, you know, sometimes, though, the, the simplest song, somebody with their guitar and their voice can create the richest of pictures. Um, Throw as much computer-generated wizardry as you like at it. Sometimes, sometimes the human brain is better. Sometimes, imagination wins. So a little earlier on you heard the Moroccan song in poem form, um, but now I'm going to take it as an example of as a, a sub-genre of country known as Western Swing. Uh, this style originated in the 1920s in the Western and Southern USA sort of string bands, as they were called, uh, a band basically consisting of stringed instruments, guitars, banjo, string bass, or T-chest bass, um, fiddle, mandolin, that kind of thing. Western Swing was primarily music to dance to, often upbeat in tempo, and attracted huge crowds to dance halls. And there's sort of a clear line in the crossover from country to jazz and... As it grew, the the ensemble would augment with you know drums or piano and steel guitar, um, sort of edging ever closer to that all American big band sound with the occasional saxophone thrown in as well. The term swing 
back then didn't really have anything to do with the the musical rhythm as it does now, you know, swing meaning that relaxed, boom, 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 that sort of rhythm compared to the to a straight, you know, Latin or rock, rhythm. So swing just referred to the dancing bit, and you can hear in the style how it's a huge melting pot of, you know, country, jazz, Dixieland, blues, polka, you know, all sorts. Um, Western swing went on to influence later styles like rock and roll, rockabilly, and the like. Um, so a few years ago, the the Moroccan song by the Long Road was born uh, as a nod towards Western swing, up tempo, upbeat, with a a chord sequence you'd find in any classic uh, Western swing number. Um, the guitar is important in the mix. Rather than having a string bass, we have me on the tuba, um, but still that sort of jazzy bass line rather than a, a brass band bass line. I found this quote online, according to Merle Travis, an American country singer-songwriter. Western swing is nothing more than a group of talented country boys, unschooled in music, but playing the music they feel, beating a solid 2-4 rhythm to the harmonies that buzz around their brains. When it escapes in all its musical glory, my friend, you have Western swing. Well, unschooled in music some of us may be, but certainly playing the music we feel uh, and letting it escape in all its musical glory for sure. So, this is Moroccan Song, available on iTunes or wherever you buy your music. It's a dirty, thirsty, cracked-up street with a coke sign over the bar Where a watermelon man sells sunshine gold in the remains of the old bazaar And the gap-toothed fella and the cat with one eye keep a watch on under tamarind tree by the old village well Drinking sweet tea from a glass Well, the California girl has been a long time on a run With an email from her mother and a mess from her brother Saying we're so sorry that you've gone It's a dirty, thirsty, cracked up street With a coke sign over the bar Where a watermelon man says sunshine gold In the mains of the old bazaar Dead-eyed moon 
themselves in blue Smoking all Moroccan, believing they're forgotten from a bad time point of view They share a memory, Iran in mid-July Of the world's perpetual motion and the fish out in the ocean and the snow Daily Bread. Finally, dear listener, I am embarking on the challenge I laid down for myself several weeks ago now. Um, a nice dinner roll with a, a crusty outside and a delicious soft inside. To be honest, I was always a bit put off by the term crusty dinner roll. Is, is that the right word? I'm not sure. Is, is that what people refer to them as? Uh, anyway, as I speak, the uh, the dough is actually in the oven, um, having had a couple of rises. Um, so the recipe I've gone for this week is off that there internet. Um, I avoided the one that was labelled medal-winning crusty dinner roll recipe um, that Google offered up near the top of the list, mainly because the recipe asked for one egg white, which troubled me. Um, haven't used just egg whites in a recipe before, but I'm sure I could get over that. The, the main reason was I'd run out of eggs, so put a stopper in that one. Um, the recipe I did go for seemed fairly standard, although it was one of those recipes where they have five or ten paragraphs of other bits and bobs, life story, anecdotes, adverts, etc., before they actually get to the recipe. There was a little discussion or rather dismissal, of the notion of a spray of water in the oven to get the crusty crust going. Instead, this person has suggested that a glaze be used post-second rise pre-oven, a mix of water and corn flour, which I hadn't come across before in all my years of experience of watching Bake Off. Uh, So I will attempt it. Who knows? Maybe it'll work a treat. Um, I had seen other shows where the baker threw a bunch of ice cubes in the bottom of the oven after putting the dough in to bake. Um... I didn't really understand why, so I googled it. There's next level research going on here this week, pals. So apparently, steam is essential for a good bread crust because it keeps the outer dough moist while the inside cooks. Without steam protecting the dough, the crust and inner crumb will cook too quickly, creating a burnt, dense bread with little flexibility. And I think we can all agree here in this day and age that a little flexibility goes a long way. They continue. The crispness of the dough is created by starch gel on its surface, which is created in the dough when it's moist at 80 degrees Celsius and above. They go on to talk about the the Maillard reaction, I think that's how you say it, um, or the the browning reaction, where I think essentially sugars in food caramelise to give give flavour. I think whoever it was who did that thing with steaks on TV a few years ago, Heston Blumenthal perhaps, where they recommended, much to the contradiction of just about every other chef on the planet it seems, if you're cooking steak, to keep on turning it every 15 seconds when cooking it on high, as that's the best way to get a good Maillard reaction. Mm. The website I found also talks about Dutch ovens, cooking the bread in a pot with a lid, so all the evaporating water is kept inside. Also the spray bottle method, spraying the oven with water a bit before putting the dough in, and then a final spray once the dough is in cooking. And finally they say the ice cube method, 
same basic principle the ice will evaporate into steam when it's in there and the moistening effect on the dough will give it a good crust um so uh, i'm actually doing an experiment i've got um i've got the current dough in now which has got a water cornflour crust as per the original recipe i found and then i've got another dough which i'm going to use the ice cube method on and we'll we'll see which works out best exciting times here at maison de bishop if the first batch are actually done before I up- upload this week's show, I'll, I'll do a little update. If not, you might have to wait until next week to hear the results of the experiment. In other longer-term news, I am considering starting a sourdough starter. Um, never done it before. Anyway, more on that in the coming weeks. <laughs> So, thank you for listening, as always, wherever you are in the world. Some highlights from the top listener countries this week. USA seems to be top this week, uh, I'm afraid. UK, you came in second. Australia in third. Switzerland and Germany next. Thank you all. Danke schön. Um, Remember to subscribe to the Long Road Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, The next episode will be out next week, Friday the 20th of March, 2020. Um, let us know what you think um, have a look for Steve Bonham on Facebook that's our main social media channel um, contact us on there uh, check out our YouTube channel youtube.com slash stevebonham01 if you want to message us directly on Twitter for instance uh, Steve is at stevebonham01 I'm at daschrisleiden L-Y-D-O-N um, Kev's still banned from Twitter I'm afraid remember if you want to get that mailing go to artisan-creative.com to sign up And don't forget, all of our music is available on Spotify and Apple Music. Just search for The Long Road and go and have a listen. Um, So thank you once again, brave adventurers, vagabonds and explorers. Remember, the world isn't beige, it's authentic, it's rich and it's real. Embrace every last bit of it. Until next time, the journey goes ever on with The Long Road. Bye for now. (laughs) 